Let me pray. Sorry, uh, Maria, are we keeping you awake? Uh, let's pray and uh, we'll read. Thank you, Father, that uh, the Bible tells us about your love. And we pray you help us tonight to learn how to respond to your love. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 7, page 943. Or do you know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which, led us, which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have known, sorry, if I would have not known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. <coughs> For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I'm of the flesh sold under sin. For I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I if I do what I want, if I do not want, I agree with the Lord, that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. <coughs> now let me pause there. I think there's going to be a little exodus of uh, children leaving, and then we'll get back to that story in Romans chapter 7. Okay, let me ask you a special question for ladies. Do you fancy being married to Mr. Perfect? He doesn't exist. He is the perfect he husband. Exist. He doesn't, please, don't fool us. He doesn't exist. Well, look, let me tell you. Would it be a good thing if you were married to Mr. Perfect no. or not? The trouble is with Mr. Perfect is... Well, he is Mr. Perfect. I was reading a newspaper article this week about a terrible husband, selfish, unfaithful, distant, and we think someone like that would make the very worst husband. But Paul wants to tell us in Romans chapter 7, it could be worse. What if your husband's perfect? What happens if he's written the perfect book about the perfect marriage and he lives it out? himself and every day you realize you're just not like him you come down to breakfast in your onesie he is uh, perfectly dressed uh, you uh, uh, live on chips and uh, what uh, he likes to cook you can't even pronounce it so posh here's mr perfect he loves opera uh, you do karaoke really badly he gets everything right, you get everything wrong. There is something worse than marrying a bad husband. There is something worse than living with disappointment in someone. What's worse is when you live with disappointment in yourself. That you are not performing the way you should. And you know you failed because you've read his book. And that's generally how people uh, expect to make a difference, to get the perfect book on how to live this way. And that's how most people want to get their lives right. 
And people are doing that in chapter 7, verse 1. They know God's law. They say this is God's how to guide to live life. And the difficulty is you read the book and you see it's like being married to Mr. Perfect. You're a failure every day. But what happens if Mr. Perfect, your first husband, dies? And you're free to find someone new. Who will you go to on the rebound? Paul introduces us to your first husband's best friend. And when Paul talks about uh, Christianity in terms of marriage, he says you need two component parts to make it work. You need a new husband and you need a struggling wife. We'll look at those two one by one. Let's start with uh, the new marriage, the new husband. <coughs> and many people think that when you're in a church, you're talking about <coughs> a Christian being married to someone, they're normally talking about getting married to the Bible. It's how people expect you to have a perfect relationship with God if you're very, very close to your Bible. But last week we saw the Christians are people who are in Jesus so much that what happened to Jesus actually happened to them. And we saw last week that we died to the old life when he died and now we live a new life. We live his life. And chapter 7 verse 4 is carrying on that line. It's telling us that uh, we too have uh, died to the law. Chapter 7 verse 4, likewise my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. And it's fantastic being dead. You don't have to pay parking fines. You don't have to pay taxes. Death is a law-free zone you don't have to do what the law says anymore. But it doesn't mean that when we're married to the new husband that we're now set free to break the rules. Because Jesus is the one that we now live with and he was the law's best friend. He kept all the laws that uh, uh, the Bible wanted him to keep. And now Paul says in chapter 7 verse 4, belong to him. And let the fruit, let the outcome of your life show who you belong to, who you love most. And when we belong to him, what we find is that actually we start living a new life. We start bearing fruit for him. We start to live in new ways that the law would never help us to do. Look at chapter 7 verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Now he's not bad-mouthing the old husband, in other words, Paul is not bad-mouthing the law. He says the law was perfect in verse 12. The law is holy and the commandment is 
holy and righteous and good. It's just that the law never raised our game. It's a bit like a, a hiker going on a hike up a mountain and in his backpack is this fantastic lunch. Lots of it, very nourishing. But while he's trudging up the hill, this backpack is heavy, it's pulling him back. But then halfway up the hill, he stops and he takes the backpack off and he eats the lunch. Now, what was holding him back is now providing energy inside him to go up, to make progress, or in what we're talking about in our Christian lives, to bear fruit for Jesus. When it's outside of us, the law actually causes us to sin. That's the really strange thing that this part of the Bible has to tell us today. It tells us that in chapter 7, verses 7 to 9. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means yet. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Think of it like this. A little country is taken over by a superior country. Now what's the little country feeling? It's feeling resentful, sullen that there is this superior uh, force that has now come into contact with them. But the rebellion is just a sullen do-nothing thing until the superior country starts sending in its tax collectors and demanding laws to be paid. At that point, the fun starts, the rebellion kicks off. And that's what I'm like too. I don't want God, his superior, and I stand in front of him as a bit of a sullen, I don't really want to listen to you, but then he starts talking. When he starts giving me commands, that's when I really say no and push back. Another way to uh, look at that is uh, to see that um, <clears throat> it's a bit like uh, taking a little child shopping when it's in a bad mood you know it is they start kicking their legs and you're very embarrassed and you're constantly taking people out. I can only apologize I, I can only apologize and then you go around the corner and you get down to eye level and you say that's it you stop you keep your hands and your legs inside the buggy now what you're telling them at that point is holy and righteous and good but now they really know how to wind you up so you go into the next shop and the arms come out and the clothes come off all the hangers as they go past and whereas the, the feet were kicking before now they're kicking on steroids and everything <coughs> is far worse that's the Christian's problem more law for us doesn't mean more obedience but loving a new person will make a difference and Jesus was the law's best friend and now you belong to him he begins to produce inside you a new life that looks like his because you're now belonging to a new husband.
you love a new person, their life begins to emerge from yours. That's the first ingredient, the component, the new husband. What about the wife? But the second component in a Christian relationship is a struggling wife. Let me uh, introduce you to her. Uh, there she is. I'm going to call her battling Bertha. You see, in her first marriage, Bertha wasn't struggling. She just gave up trying. She knew she couldn't please her husband. The best she could do is to, every now and then, get something right and usually superficially. So let's say she is a rubbish cook, but at least she always got the meals on time. A superficial thing that meant that at the time she was able to perform, but generally he didn't want to sit down and eat it. She wasn't a good cook. And she just basically gave up on that front. But in her second marriage, she's been so loved by her husband that she really, really wants to belong to him. So when she fails, yes, he forgives her because he loves her so much, but it really gets to her. And that new struggle that she has, wanting so much to be his, that's what shows you, that's proof positive that uh, she belongs to him. This little picture might uh, help us explain. In chapter 6, uh, we saw last week that everyone is part of Adam's family. That is, it's in our genes to push God away from us and not to listen to him. That's what Adam didn't do and we don't want to either. We're Adam's children. But then what happens is that once we get into the second relationship, then Jesus comes in and we become joined to his family. And so we end up feeling a bit like Piggy in the middle. There's a new pull on our lives and that new pull on our lives is what shows we're in the second marriage. Previously, that pull towards Jesus just wasn't there. So the struggle itself shows that someone really belongs to him because they don't want to live as if they don't. Now, it's a struggle and it makes Paul feel wretched. If you look at chapter 7, verse 25, and he's there saying, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But then, wonderfully, in verse 25, Paul begins to uh, see new joy in his life. Because Adam's body of death will soon be exchanged for a new resurrection body. So now Paul says, my mind works overtime to please Jesus, but yes, it's true. His bodily desires will often win. So it's both grr in verse 24 and praise the Lord in verse 25. That shows you Paul is a real Christian. And it's wonderful, isn't it? Because what he says here 
you and I know for, for, for real if we're following Jesus. Uh, Fairmount, as we were looking at this passage yesterday, he said in the whole of the Bible, verses 13 to 25 were the best words he's ever read. And I think I can understand that and feel a lot of that too. Well, what can we learn from this take home today? Well, I want to uh, say there are three different people who might like to take home three different lessons. First, I wanted to meet what I call Surface Sam. Now, he's not a bad person, and he often wants to be a better person when he gets it spectacularly wrong. But nothing for Sam ever changes under the surface. And he lives his life feeling low-level guilt because he knows that he's just repeating wrong and he does that all the time. Now that's really ultimately showing you someone who belongs to Adam's family without the pull of belonging to Jesus. Now, it's very easy when someone from Adam's family comes into a church like this and to hear a pastor talk and what they're expecting the pastor to say is be a good person. By and large that's what people expect Christians to say. Be a good person. But what every pastor will say if they teach the Bible properly is no not be a good person. Belong to a new person. Belong to the Lord Jesus. Submit to him as if he is the new owner of your life. Really belong to him. And you find yourself opening up a whole new life bearing fruit for him. What happens if your churchy Charlie, that's the second person on my list, he's grown up uh, going to church, he's gone to quite a few churches, and he'll tell you if you ask him, a Christian is someone who obeys God's laws. He's been taught to say that in every church he's attended, but this is the thing. The Bible, you open it up and it tells you that the more laws you know, the less obedience there is. And so people who've got a background of going regularly to the traditional Church of England church or the traditional church, Roman Catholic church or the traditional Pentecostal church, We'll be surprised to read chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, connecting law and sin. And they'll begin to see that actually the religion that they've subscribed to all their lives is the reason why they sin more and not less. The only way to do it is to ditch those ways of thinking and to belong to Jesus in a new marriage. What happens if you are someone who belongs to Jesus in that new relationship, in that new way? Well, you'd be a battling birther, won't you? Because it's not your performance that tells you that you belong to Jesus, it's your punch. That is, your fight back from the old you that says, I want to be like him because I now belong to him. He loves me so much. He's the person I want to be living for. He's the person I want to be um, bearing fruit for. 
And therefore what happens is that uh, Batibat will always love her husband for loving her so much. He died for her on the cross that she wants now her life to look like his, to die to sin and to live for God. So she knows that she wants to plan in her mind all the ways in which she wants to live for him. Now it doesn't mean that she always will because her body and its desires will probably let her down. But it's a bit like uh, uh, going to a pub. Probably it's a really bad illustration to talk in a church. You can't, let's say you go to a, a, a pub. You won't be able to drink the whole pub dry, but at least you can make a good start. Okay, forget the pub illustration. Go to a supermarket. You won't be able to eat everything on the shelf, but at least you will be able to eat quite a bit. The Christian life is like that. You won't be able to live perfectly righteousness, but go and enjoy as much righteousness as you can. Plan with your mind how to live your new husband in the model that Paul uses in this chapter. Second thing, you will also love heaven, not just the cross. Because that's the best part of heaven, that one day you will belong to the Lord Jesus with all the breaks off because you'll be free from this body of death. You will finally have complete freedom without restraint to live for him and like him. So, battling Bertha, she loves the cross. She loves the future. But she also loves other believers because they are like her. So she will also love Christians who fail. See, Paul couldn't do the right thing he desired to do in chapter 7, verse 18, and he's an apostle. Well, every Christian here will feel that same frustration as well. Like in uh, chapter 7, verse 19, just like Paul, we'll do evil things we don't really want to do. We're full of contradictions, you and me, for following Jesus. The loving dad today in church doting on his uh, children can be the dad who goes home and uh, beats them up and hates himself afterwards. Uh, we need to be a church where people like that are at home. We need to be a church that celebrates success when battles are won and when people bear fruit and the loving dad goes home to be the loving dad. We want to celebrate that as much as we can with great joy but we also need to be a church, a family where failures can talk about their failures because in here is the one place in the world that other people are struggling too and will therefore be able to understand. And failures who come here 
won't feel like they've got to keep quiet and pretend that they're different to put the good show on. Failures come here and can find they feel loved and be brought to thankfulness because they are loved by the Jesus they belong to. And one day they face a future where they will be free from all that holds them back here and now. So there will be thankfulness when they come home and they'll find love as they walk through the door. That's the church that we want to be when we understand Romans 7. Let's pray that God will help us to be like that in a moment of quiet. One minute, you talk to God about whatever you want to say to him after this chapter and then after one minute I'll pray and we'll take questions and answers. Well, let me pray. Our Father, we do want to thank you that when we open up the Bible we don't see superheroes telling us that we've got to uh, try hard to be like them. Thank you that we have high-ranking people like Paul who say they are low-ranking in terms of how they serve and please you. Thank you, Father, that when we meet people like that, real people in the Bible, we know that your word is in touch with reality and understands how we struggle. And so we pray that you would please help us, Lord, to come to you this evening humble, with the freedom to admit that we fail, but at the same time, Father, the joy of knowing that we have someone who is committed to us that will not break the tie and someone who one day will free us from all that derails our good intentions and gives us the freedom to belong and bear fruit for you. Thank you Father that, uh, that the Bible opens up to us this new life full of hope. Keep us we pray battling to follow Jesus with all our minds and that we might live in his likeness increasingly although there'll be spectacular failures along the way. Please help us to be a church where we love people and rejoice when it's going well but also where we have great uh, love and affection and encouragement to bring failures to thank you and love you again. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <coughs>